everyone. Welcome to episode nine of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I'm your host, Miles Taylor. I'm very excited to be hosting this on Colin, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. Our guest today is yet another disruptor. The person you're going to hear from is a vocal leader and a man who is running for Congress in the state of Utah. His name is Jake Hunsacker. Jake, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, Miles. Appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Uh, so let's kick off with this, Jake. Uh, if you want to tell listeners, just let's, let's do this. Who the hell is Jake? And also... <laughs> Who's he running against? Uh, so, so, so paint us a picture of yourself and who you're running against for Congress so folks know, you know what we're talking about here. Because you know, I, I, I titled this April Fools in the GOP, and I sort of set you up as a dummy here. Like, is, is Jake a fool for even trying to reform the Republican Party? So I think it's better uh, for you to paint that picture at the top end and, uh, and, and tell us you know, what, what cause you're crusading on. Yeah, well, to be honest, I'm not sure we're through the book yet. We, I might be a fool for uh, for doing what I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I appreciate the opportunity, and, and and yeah, who the as we say in Utah here, who the heck is Jake? Uh, <laughs> I am from. I'm, I'm listen. I'm a reluctant um, kind of participant in. I think you know trying to avoid uh, a moment of crisis in in my party and in the country. Uh, but uh, I think it's a much needed participation, you know, and, and and we need more people to get involved. And so I'm happy to be running um, and I'm proud of, you know, our movement for change in my party and, and in the country. But a little bit about me. I mean, I'm I'm a lifelong Utahn, uh, born and raised in a large Utah family of 11 kids. And I'm on the tail end of that, and I give my parents the biggest headache of all of my siblings, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, but and, and, and they, they no kind parent of, ever wishes upon their child that they run for Congress. No, oh, parent no, wants that for their child. They're learning firsthand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I was raised in an agricultural community here in northern Utah. My first job was milking cows, literally. My second job was picking sweet corn in the late summer between school years. And so, you know, and we were a Republican household, I'm a lifelong Republican. And uh, we grew up kind of um, talking around the dinner table about the values that make us conservative. And especially for me, um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm maybe giving away a little bit about my age here, but I grew up in the 90s, uh, you know, during a Clinton administration that was um, slightly scandal ridden uh, for personal reasons in the administration. And we kind of grew up talking about the need to have morally upright leaders who were the same good person, you know, behind closed doors as they as they seemed to be in public. And, um, and, you know, so fast forward a few years and I look around at my party and it seems to me that the party has, um, you know, left that space in many ways. And, uh, where we used to prioritize, um, you know, moral and upright and civil rhetoric and leadership, we now say, you know, well, the left is so evil that we have to fight fire with fire and we've almost removed all of those qualifiers, personal and moral qualifiers for public office that we used to 
uh, prioritize. Um, and I know that's a gross oversimplification, uh, but I also think that it's it's relevant and, and it applies. Um, you know, we've seen in the last couple of years that we have a, have leadership here in the party that's um, shown to be devoid of some of that moral compass um, in behavior and rhetoric that we need to prioritize in um, in, in, a, in a party that that you know, at least preaches and uh, seems to espouse many of those values and in a land that um, that is full of good people who want good leaders. And so, um, you know, that came to a boiling point for me on January 6, 2021, as I'm sure it did for many people across this country. And, and I thought, um, my gosh, if this isn't the moment that, you know, shines a light on our deficiency of moral character, uh, you know, then what is? And Unfortunately, I've seen the party kind of dig in its heels since the days of January 6th, right? Um, instead of acknowledge that boiling point. And so I uh, jumped into the race. Now, uh, so that's, a, that's, a, that's about me, but we didn't talk about my opponent, Burgess Owens. Um, he's not well, probably as recognizable uh, of a household name as maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or Matt Gaines. <laughs> well, and, and, but, but let me jump in there, Jake. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I do want to hear your perspective because undoubtedly one of the reasons you entered this race had to have been because you don't think the person who's representing your district is the right person. And, and right. for those who don't know, you know, Burgess Owens from Utah's fourth congressional district, the thing that stands out to me, and I remember it vividly is, Right after the 2020 election, uh, you know, Owens came out and publicly uh, pronounced that the Democrats were trying to steal the election from Donald Trump. Uh, and then I remember when you know they were certifying the Electoral College vote, Owens was really strident about this and insisted that Trump was the winner. The quote from him was, "Absolutely, yes, I do." In other words, think he's the winner. There's no question in my mind that Trump won. Uh, mm-hmm. And has you know continued to push that line. I wonder, you know, was that one of the reasons you wanted to jump in this race? And and what else about Burgess Owens kind of pushed you uh, to jump into the political fray? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And and I use the terms, um, you know, extreme and sensational uh, when describing Owens and the words he uses, the uh, messages that he sends. And, uh, and, and, you know, in reality, many of the things he chooses to say are completely false. Um, and it starts actually before the election in the primary. Uh, it was an open seat here and it was a swing district. And we had, you know, four or five contenders um, in District 4 for the GOP nomination. And Burgess Owens, um, right out of the gate, uh, refused to, you know, vocally and, and overtly disavow QAnon. Uh, you know, because he probably at that point didn't want to alienate the fringes of his own party and, and um, his chances of getting the nomination. And of course, it, when it came down to the heated general election after he had secured the nomination in my party, then he was more than happy to say, oh, no, no, you know, QAnon, this, that, whatever. But the, the reality is he pandered to that extreme fringe of the party initially uh, to secure the nomination which I found to be, you know, just more of the unfortunate same behavior that we've seen in recent years. And then, of course, you have the election. You have his words that you just mentioned on the heels of the 2020 election um, leading up to January 6th. Um, I mean, even looking, you know, beyond that, um, his first book that he wrote, 
is titled something like, you know, how Democrats turn good men into whiners, weenies and wimps. <laughs> you well, know, at least this... he at least he's clever enough to do alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> we love alliteration. I mean, that's, we, love... That's, we love lists of three in alliteration are my my main jam, Miles. Um, so you got to guess. I mean, as, as I always say, Jake, although I am acknowledged to have achieved an abiding affinity for alliteration. Alas, I am not the author of all of it. <laughs> we have to give credit where credit is due, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. Um, but, you know, and it's so interesting now on the campaign trail because it's so clear to me that he dabbles in this uh, brand of extremism and sensationalism as a politician. But I often, unfortunately and surprisingly, find myself having to illustrate to voters, you know, they say, well, you use these words extreme and sensational. What do you mean? I don't see that from Burgess Owens. And mm -hmm. I, I find it so unfortunate that I feel like we are a little bit of a frog that's been boiled alive by degrees, you know, like, like the, the things that used to be completely, you know, incomprehensible uh, that, that we would never have imagined would come out of a leader's mouth or an elected official's mouth or Twitter account, you know, now it's just the, the run of the mill kind of, you know, normal news cycle. Um, and we don't see the sensationalism and the extremism for what, for what it is. Uh, and, and so I've been surprised and chagrined to find that some of my battle on the campaign trail has been to, you know, kind of jolt voters, you know, awake to the reality of, of the words that, that their elected leaders are using or choosing to use. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I think it's just really unfortunate. So I don't say that Burgess, you know, he's not a top five, you know, brand in terms of the extreme GOP right now, but certainly top 10. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's certainly, I think, something a lot of other observers would say, um, but maybe not enough of them from within the Republican Party itself. And, and I want to press you on this point. You've been very vocal about the fact that the party has gone wayward uh, and you're still a Republican and you're running mm -hmm. in the Republican Party. A lot of folks that are your peers in this space have left the party and said, you know, I, I can't be a Republican anymore. I can't accept the election denying, the condoning political violence, the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories. Talk to me a little bit about why you think the best approach is to stay within the party and, and reform it from within rather than, you know, waging battle against uh, conservatives you disagree with from the outside? Yeah, uh, it, it's a fair question, and I get it often. Um, and to be honest, I kind of had a personal answer, but it was not, you know, articulated even probably to me very well uh, until a few weeks ago. And I know you just had um, former Congresswoman uh, Barbara Comstock on a, f a few weeks ago, and Mm -hmm. uh, I, I enjoyed listening to the podcast episode with her. Um, and I'm going to quote her because she gave me the answer to that, um, actually. And, uh, you know, I know that she and others like her long before, uh, long before I was. Um, uh, but she said something really interesting. She said, you know, uh, when people ask me that, and now I'm talking, you know, as her, uh, when people yeah. ask me, you know, do you, you know, leave the house and put out the fire from outside the house or, or how do we or do you stay in the party? She said, you know, I was in this party long before 
you know, opportunistic politicians took it over for their own for their own means and their own ends. And I'll be darned if I'm not here standing when they desert the party, you know. And the reality is that, you know, the Republican Party did exist long before any of this recent kind of takeover uh, from some of these more extreme figures. You know, I was a Republican and I was here in Utah milking cows long before my opponent Burgess Owens knew that either Utah or the GOP existed. <laughs> you know, he, he was playing uh, football for the Raiders as a Democrat, uh, you know, uh, for, for most of his life before he decided to move here and become a Republican. And, but but and, people uh, want to know, Jake. Do you still get your milk from cows that you milk yourself? Because if you don't, <laughs> you're, you're probably not qualified. Uh, in that I, I know the reality. Uh, yeah, I, I well, I never owned those cows. I was uh, working on <laughs> my neighbor's farm. So uh, but yes, I'm still a milk drinker. I'm not sure I'll ever be able to convert to soy milk, to be honest. Um, but, uh, but I, I hold space in my heart for people who do, <laughs> um, yeah. So, but, but, you know, and, and that's the reality is that there are so many of us lifelong Republicans who still believe in the essential, um, kind of pillars of conservatism, free market, you know, uh, individual accountability and fiscal responsibility and, and all of these things that, you know, make a conservative, a conservative, that, to be honest, don't take up much of the conservative talking space right now at all. Um, in fact, I just tweeted during the last State of the Union from President Biden, um, and I was on a plane um, watching it with, you know, about two thirds of the passengers. It was actually kind of a unifying experience. We're all sitting here watching the State of the Union on our on our backseat TVs. Um, but I tweeted, you know, it's ironic that we're hearing the same protectionist economic policy from this Democrat president as we heard from the last Republican president, you know, mm -hmm. and and there are people, you know, and we talk about tariffs and so forth. Um, there are people who have been in the party like me for a long time who realize that our talking points right now have not only become sensational, they've also departed from the actual pillars of conservatism that make us conservative. And so part of the uh, campaign right now and part of our movement in the party is just to remind people, hey, listen, these are the tenets of our conservative philosophy. And, and look how our leaders have allowed us to depart from those tenets in their policy, in their positions, right, in their uh, in their uh, trade agreements and so forth. And um, so that's that's the other half of the equation. Liz Cheney. She right now is someone who's an exemplar of uh, a candidate who has done battle with the Republican Party. She's fighting for her seat in Wyoming. There are some <laughs> folks speculating that uh, Liz Cheney or others like her will make a run for the presidency in 2024 and uh, try to reform the Republican Party. Curious to get your take. By the next election cycle, do you see the Republican Party and the pendulum swinging back towards the center, uh, towards sort of the Liz Cheney's of the party? Or do you see it swinging further in the direction of a Burgess Owens? I, I wish that I was politically savvy enough to be able to make a call on where we are <laughs> right now in, in the movement of that pendulum. Uh, and I'm not sure that I am. I hope that it's sooner than later. I think we all do. Um, 
And one of the reasons I'm running right now is because I had this epiphany earlier this year where I, I know, you know, and, and I think that one of the things that makes me optimistic about the future of the party in the country is that I believe, you know, we run on a pendulum that swings. And so, you know, where, where we course correct or overcorrect, you know, in one moment, we'll come back toward the center in, in the next moment. I truly believe that most of the time that happens. But the, my epiphany this year was that the pendulum doesn't just swing by itself. You have to have people jump in to push it. And I think people like Liz Cheney, people like Adam Kinzinger, uh, and, and hopefully people like, you know, me now, uh, new candidates this cycle are jumping in and, and realize that this is a moment where the pendulum needs to be uh, pushed uh, back toward the center. I hope that we see the fruits of that this cycle. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be this cycle or in a future cycle, but I know that I want to be one of the pendulum pushers. And that's what matters most to me right now. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, Liz Cheney, I actually just saw yesterday a friend forwarded me um, uh, an invite that they had received through other means uh, for a fundraiser that's headlined by Kevin McCarthy um, for Liz Cheney's challenger in Wyoming. Uh, and my opponent, Burgess Owens, is also on the list of dignitaries for that fundraiser back in D.C. Um, and to me, that is the most egregious you know, behavior of party leadership that I you know, can think of the narrowing of the definition of conservative or Republican is not only detrimental to our own party, you know, it, it, it's politically um, st stupid, <laughs> you know, like uh, the, the idea that the leader of the Republican, you know, uh, House minority here uh, is is actively campaigning against one of his own caucus members uh, you know, simply because they differ on their view of one figure is completely moronic to me. Why on earth would you ever throw your hat in uh, around that type of a litmus test for what it means to be a true Republican or conservative? Um, to me, that hurts our own chances as a party um, for furthering our philosophy and, and our policy positions long term. And it shows poor leadership. And so, you know, and I hope that, you know, whoever's listening, whatever they think of Liz Cheney, uh, and I, I tend to think she's on the right side of history in a lot of this, but whatever you think of Liz Cheney, the idea that you would be ostracized simply because of your view of one individual in our party, uh, to me, just goes beyond, you know, any type of, of true definition of what it should mean to be conservative. Well, and uh, you called these folks dignitaries that are going to this event, Jake, I think they're probably indignitaries. Um, I'm not sure if that's even a <laughs> it, word, but, but we've, we've coined that word today. <laughs> it, it, it could be. Yeah. But many of them are sitting members of Congress. Right. And I just have never yeah. seen, you know, a, a party gang up on a, a current elected official in its own ranks before in this fashion. It's just mind boggling to me. It, it's, it, I mean, it's schoolyard intimidation. I mean, they're, they're mm -hmm. taking the, the kids that disagree with the bully and, and slamming them up against the brick wall and yep. saying, you better not, or you're, you know, ejected from the playground. It's, like, it's pretty stunning to see. I'm going to zoom out from, you know, the tip of the spear of politics for a second and, and mm -hmm. ask you about the bigger picture health of our republic. I mean, this is something that Americans after the era of Donald Trump wanted to take a breather and ignore politics for a while, but somehow the chaos still seems to be 
poking its way into our lives every day, if anything, just from the news alerts on our phones about, you know, the continued undulations in our political system. I want to ask you about democracy reforms. There's a big movement afoot in this country to do things like open primaries and ranked choice voting and all of these different buzzwords to reform the democratic process so that more moderate leaders get elected, more folks willing to cross the aisle, and more extreme closed-minded leaders don't win elections, more extreme candidates. Curious to get your thought on some of the democracy reform discussions underway. Are there things in particular you think state of Utah or the country should undertake structural changes so we get the heck out of this crazy period of political extremism? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, things are showing to be broken. And uh, in, in some ways, we are reinforcing the problem through the policies that we choose to champion. Uh, and, and actually, you know, I think ranked choice voting, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always a fan of outside of the box kind of creative, innovative thinking, you know, and I come from the private sector. The private sector has to innovate to survive every single day. And I think that's something that, you know, our uh, institutions, um, federal or state, very rarely are forced to do. And so, I and I really um, applaud any efforts to do, you know, to to solve these problems creatively. And I and I'm not opposed, you know, fundamentally to revisiting how we vote, um, you know, here in the U.S. Uh, state by state. If it sh- if it if the data shows that it's going to get us outcomes that I think you know average voters are much more um, aligned with. But I also think that there's some low hanging fruit that you know. Um, you know, state by state, we have to just be honest about. And, and you know, one of those things is gerrymandering, um, you know, and, and this happens on both sides of the aisle. But the reality is that we are gerrymandering ourselves into more extreme voices every single election cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, you know, here in our state legislature, we just had a couple of long term, a long time, you know, sitting elected Republicans who are fairly moderate uh, just get ousted at the county conventions uh, here in Utah because of the new district boundaries that have been drawn and because of the way we keep making pink districts red and purple districts, you know, deep blue. Um, There's no incentive in a general election to coalesce around a moderate voice uh, because the biggest battle that you face is in the primary. And to me, that's a direct threat to progress, to the type of unifying leadership that our country relies on and has relied on for centuries. Uh, we have to get beyond this gerrymandering mess. Um, and, and that's a state-by-state state issue. Um, I think that, you know, in some ways, you know, we saw, we've seen some lawsuits um, recently. I think a ruling as, as recently as yesterday uh, was it in New York um, ruling some of those gerrymandered lines, um, you know, illegal? And and I hope that the courts hold states accountable for the lines that they're drawing because, um, you know, because this is part of the broken system. You know, I think another thing is campaign finance. As a first-time candidate running against a, an entrenched incumbent, 
Um, I have seen firsthand, you know, just how uneven the playing field can be in terms of fundraising and, and campaign finance. And the reality is I've had a number of political consultants tell me right out of the gate, you know, there are only, and you've heard this before, I'm sure, you know, there are only two, two things that matter in politics. The first one is money and the second one doesn't matter, right? And, <laughs> and that's just the sad reality of things. And, uh, and, you know, it, it, until we fix, until we're honest, and by the way, my half of the country, my side of the aisle has been reluctant to talk about campaign finance reform, but we have to, you know, otherwise we're going to keep getting, you know, people into office elected by special interest money, um, who have no incentive to, you know, be accountable to everyday voters with, you know, $25 max to be able to donate to a campaign and, and, and those are the type of people that should be running the country. And right now, uh, we just have much deeper pockets that are impacting the outcome of elections. So certainly refreshing, re refreshing to hear from a Republican, I think, for a lot of folks, <laughs> Jake. Um, and, and I note that we have uh, a caller in the queue, mm -hmm. a TJ, happy to take your question, caller. Jake, this is a question for you. Yesterday, 193 House Republicans voted against capping the price of insulin at $35 a month, with only 11 supporting it. If you were a House Republican, how would you vote on that exact bill? Thanks, uh, TJ, TJ, good qu good question. Um, and to be honest, I have not looked at that. This is not a political answer. I legitimately haven't looked at that bill. But what I will say about healthcare generally is that it is far too expensive and it's far too inaccessible for people who need it. Um, and, and we have a broken healthcare system in this country and it's because we don't allow consumers the same levers of control in the healthcare industry that we have and exercise in every other industry. So re a Republican who will tell you, by the way, that, you know, um, the free market you know, controls the price of insulin and we should just let, you know, the price of insulin um, uh, react to the free market forces that, you know, any other price in any other industry would, um, is not telling you the full truth. Because the reality in healthcare is that there is no price transparency or quality transparency that comes in every other industry. When you buy a car, you know, you know, uh, you know the, the quality ratings of a Honda versus a GMC, right? Um, and you know the the um, you know the mileage that the car gets, and you know the price point. And if you don't like the price point, you can go to another make or another model. Um, the reality is that in healthcare, we have none of that uh, leverage as a, as consumers. So I haven't, I didn't look at the bill yesterday, um, and I would venture to guess that it's uh, the vote yay or nay from uh, you know fellow Republicans in the House is an oversimplification and they're probably either saying, no, the free market will um, fix this. You know, if insulin, if the cost of insulin is too high, uh, you know, let's lean on free market forces to fix it. The reality is we cannot do that because we don't have those free market forces at play in healthcare. So certainly I would be open to a price cap um, in the event where consumers just don't have the power uh, to be able to make decisions for themselves that they do in other industries. Um, so hopefully that gives you an idea of, you know, how I'm viewing it. I think right now we have a broken healthcare system. We need to empower consumers. We need to get price transparency, quality transparency, so that overall it can be accessible and it can be lower cost. And that's a very complex problem. Um, 
And, and I think we have to acknowledge where we are and allow and get people the, the help that they need, get people the medicine that they need at an affordable price. Whether that bill was the solution or not, I'm not sure, but that's my outlook. Great response, Jake, and I wish you the best of luck in your campaign. Have a great Thanks, TJ. I want to ask you, Jake, I know we're getting close to time here, but uh, about a concept that we've been talking a lot about on this podcast and elsewhere, a, a concept we call coalition campaigning. There's some really interesting stuff happening this election cycle, and I'm sure you're seeing it in Utah up close and personal. And that is for the first time in a long time, it seems like we have a pretty sizable number of reform-minded Republicans or reform-minded Democrats willing to cross the aisle to support someone of the other party uh, against a more extreme candidate. And, and this is pretty novel. I mean, you know, in, in Utah right now, Evan McMullen's running for Senate. Uh, Evan used to be a Republican. Now he's an independent. Uh, there's a whole lot of Democrats in your state getting behind Evan uh, against Mike Lee, sitting U.S. Senator from Utah, who was, you know, one of a handful of senators that helped allegedly conspire with Trump to overturn the election. That's been interesting to watch. And then in other states, uh, we've been seeing, you know, the reverse. Republicans going in, uh, for instance, in Arizona. Uh, you know, I've, I've been associated with efforts of Republicans who are supporting Mark Kelly, a Democratic senator in Arizona. This is kind of an exciting thing to watch this coalition campaigning play out across the country. I wonder what you make of it. I mean, is this a, a medium term solution to our political ills is trying to convince people to cross party lines and vote the other way? I mean, whether it's ideal or not, I think it's the product of a system where people have been drawn out of, of a competitive voice in a general election, right? Um, and, and, you know, here in Utah, you have people who feel that, you know, we used to at least have one swing district. Um, and my district was, this is, you know, the district I'm running and used to be rated R plus, I think, eight to 10. It never really behaved that way. It was a true swing district every two years. They just redrew it to an R plus, I think, 35, 32 or 35. So, so in other words, for view, for listeners who don't know, that means the Republican is expected to win by 35 percentage points above their competitor. <laughs> like a, an absolutely yes. mind boggling, <clears throat> like that basically means Democrats have no shot whatsoever of winning this seat. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, whether it's ideal or not, like I said, I totally understand the mentality. I'll be honest, I'm not in the camp that says, like, you know, come be a disingenuous voter. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that ultimately I, I value, you know, people who vote with their conscience, both, you know, as elected officials and as voters. Um, and I certainly have strived to be, you know, um, that type of a voter. But I will say this as well. Um, you know, and people look at one metric, you know, party leadership here in Utah says anyone who's registered. And by the way, the deadline to register as a Republican for the primary was yesterday at midnight. Um, mm. So, you know, if you're a uh, unless you're unaffiliated, by the way, unaffiliated can register um, much later. But but, you know, they look at people coming over from the Democrat Party and registering as Republican. And they say that's, you know, 100 percent, you know, strategic voters, disingenuous Republican voters. And I actually disagree because I've been on the ground. And I've been talking to voters and uh, I would say, you know, almost as many times as people come up to me and express frustration with the Republican Party, I have people come up to me and say, I'm a lifelong Democrat. And I also see the way that, you know, the left has been um, the, the, you know, taken uh, the agenda of the left has kind of been taken over by the 
the, the extremes of my party. And, you know, they feel just as uncomfortable with the extreme, you know, policies and rhetoric of the left as they do the extreme policies and rhetoric of the right. And so I see a lot of people who, who are looking for, you know, not even party ideology anymore, but the person, the uh, candidate that they want to vote for, who they feel will represent a moderated, you know, inclusive, civil and unifying uh, vision uh, for the future and, and path forward. And to those voters, I say, you know, the geo, like, well, welcome home, you know, <laughs> yeah, come, come make your voice heard in the primary, if that's where it's going to be uh, the most impactful vote. Um, because this is, this is the, you know, I, I mean, I'm trying to be that candidate. And, you know, we see momentum behind, you know, people, whether it's Evan McMullen in the general or others running against Mike Lee, you know, there's Becky Edwards and Ali Isom are two contenders in the, in the GOP primary. I say, you know, right now is a moment that calls for you to find the candidate that's going to unify and the candidate that's going to um, stop this toxic divisiveness that we see so often in the political landscape. And that's where you should uh, put your money and, and whatever party membership that requires of you, you know, make it happen. And I think that nationwide, we're seeing voters that are starting to look more closely at the person and less closely at the party affiliation, because right now, both parties are showing that they are broken. Well, Jake, we're really grateful to have you with us. I always try to end us on a human note to prove to folks that our guests are not robots, that they're not <laughs> AI, and uh, that's going to become a necessity in the not too distant future. Uh, <laughs> I want you to I want you to leave us with uh, two things. I'm going to throw out here. One, g- give us a show that you're binging right now or you've watched recently that you love. What's you know what's a, a unofficial Jake recommendation? And two, I'm actually really interested to hear what the scariest movie you've ever seen is. I was at a dinner last night and we went around the table. And it was very, very interesting responses. Uh, happy to offer up mine, but, but curious to hear those two. So if oh, you're watching no. right now, that takes you out all the craziness and, and a movie that, that scared the pants off you when you saw it. I mean, this isn't original at all, but I just uh, got through, I think, the most recent season of Ted Lasso. And it's like the most feel, I, I just almost couldn't believe that, you know, in today's, environment there was such a feel-good show um as ted lasso and um so that's been really kind of cathartic for me to work through (laughs) um but i'm gonna have to echo that i mean honestly for anyone who's not watched ted lasso yet if you get stressed about life go take a break go watch Ted Lasso. (laughs) gotta go watch ted lasso and to be honest i avoid scary movies like the plague um i in uh, like i have like zero tolerance for uh, angst in terms of like, you know, scary movies. So I think in high school, you're going to laugh at this. I'm going to ruin my, my campaign right now, right here. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I watched the, here, folks. <laughs> I watched the village in high school. Um, do you remember that one? Yeah. That's an M night Shyamalan movie with, um, Jessica Chastain. Yeah. Yeah. I watched that one in high school and like drove, I remember driving home from my friend's house. It was like on Halloween and I had to keep the cab light on in my car <laughs> because I was so petrified. And that's, that's probably the last like, uh, you know, scary movie that I watched. Um, even though now people are like, no, it's not scary. That's like a psychological thriller, but like, there's nothing scary in it, but it's it's I, a good one. We we won't ruin the ending. It's got a great twist. Like I won't, at least I won't the original it. M Night yeah. Shyamalan movies do. The one I would put out there, Jake, 
for folks who really enjoy being terrified, and I don't like horror films or slasher films, so this is not in that category, is a Netflix show called The Haunting of Hill House that came out sometime within the past two years. Genuinely, one of the most chilling, eerie shows I've ever seen um it's but it's spectacular so uh but i doubt given uh what you like to avoid jake that you're going to go binge that show yeah i think i'll avoid (laughs) it i think i'll avoid it uh well well jake hunsacker great to have you on the podcast today my friend we look forward to touching base with you uh later in the campaign and, and hearing how things are going there on the ground in utah miles thanks so much for having me appreciate it Uh, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of Speaking Up. Next uh, Tuesday, join us for a conversation with someone from a totally different party from the other end of the political spectrum, Amy McGrath, who ran for Senate against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. We will have questions for Amy about what's going on in our politics, her views, and also what she's doing on the nonprofit side to support Uh, folks who've served our country in uniform. So thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you soon.